Welcome to today's episode of the Miso TV podcast. In today's episode, we connect with Sue Ellen Crano, a long-term mesothelioma survivor who tells us her inspirational story of diagnosis and treatment that followed. Miso TV is a video program adapted to audio only for this podcast, produced by the Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation, a national 501c3 nonprofit organization. The Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation provides patient support and education services, funds peer-reviewed research, and advocates for increased funding of mesothelioma research. This season of programming is made possible with the support of our generous sponsors. They are MRHFM, Bellican Fox, Bristol Myers Squibb, Novacure, Merck, The Gorey Law Firm, and Early Lucarelli Sweeney and Meisen Cothen. Good afternoon, Sue Ellen. Um, thank you so much for agreeing to be part of this uh, this programming. Um, Sue Ellen, you have been you've served on the uh, the board of directors of the Miso Foundation. You're a very active member of the community. You've attended so many conferences. So I feel like I know a lot about you, but. I think a lot of people who are going to be tuning in are going to be very interested in hearing your story um, because you are a very long-term survivor of this disease. And uh, despite the diagnosis, uh, you've thrived in your life and have carved out a great career as well. So um, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Mary. Um, Do you want me to just start with my story a little bit? Yes, why don't you? That would be wonderful. Oh, excellent. So I was born in Brooklyn, New York. My father was 50 when I was born and he was a building contractor. And um, I was the son he always wanted. I was a tomboy and he took me everywhere he went. And I had my Tonka trucks and I'd be playing in building materials on full blocks in Brooklyn where he was building affordable housing for people who wanted to move out of the projects. And sadly, he died when I was seven of a massive heart attack. He was also involved in politics, trying to make the city a better place. And he actually died in Gracie Mansion Uh, and never thought my my mom basically finished out the last building project, sold the business and never thought about it again until one day um, I had had um, issues with my um, ovaries and my um, GP who is a GYN in China um, said let me examine you one day when I was there having um, some other issues an earache and a sore throat and at that time he said "Mm, you know I don't like what I feel and he sent me for um, a pelvic ultrasound And when I went for the pelvic ultrasound, the technologist said, you know, I think he's a little nuts. And I said, you know, he's had great intuition all the time. I'm going to go back and follow up with him. And he said, his name was Dr. Lai, L-A-I. And he said, my hands don't lie. And he said, I'm going to follow you until we figure out what's wrong. And he started um, having me come in every few months and he would run a battery of tests. And one of them was a CA-125 because there was quite a bit of cancer in the family. And my sister had been diagnosed with breast cancer prior to that. And over time, my CA-125 kept elevating. 
it was it started off at high normal and just kept going up and the statistician and my husband and me said you know this is not a normal trajectory um, if it was noise it should be going up and down but there's definitely something going on so i called my colleague at the arizona cancer center dave alberts who i had worked with when we were at the university of arizona and he connected me with the best gyn oncologist on the west coast who happened to be at usc norris cancer center dr paul morrow and i went to see him and he said you know don't worry, he said, I've seen CA125s way high with no cancer and way low with cancer. So we'll just follow you. Did a bunch of scans, nothing was evident. And he said, we'll just follow you every three to six months. And finally, after- so, uh, Let me stop you. So how many years ago was this and how old were you at the time? Okay, so the first episode started in 1998 and I was 42. Mm -hmm. And- mm -hmm. By the time I got to see Dr. Morrow, it was 2000. And then mm -hmm. in, and we did um, CT scans, MRIs, ultrasounds, nothing was showing up. But this, by that time, my CA125 was about 150. And I had a CT scan in January of 2001, and it showed an ovarian cyst. And he said, okay, and a little bit of ascites, not much. And he said, you know what? He said, this could be what was causing you the problem. Uh, let's go in and we'll clean that out. Um, if it's a problem, um, I'll do a complete hysterectomy and we'll follow up. He said, but it just looks like an ovarian cyst. And if everything's fine, we'll just take out the ovary. So that February, I go in for the laparoscopic procedure. And unbeknownst to me, while I was under, he came out white as a ghost to my husband and son who were waiting in the old days when you could wait in the hospital for a loved one before COVID. And he said, I've never seen anything like this. There are millions of cancer seedlings on and around all her organs from her diaphragm all the way down everywhere. And um, my husband said, well, what are you gonna do? And he said, I'm calling Dave Alberts because um, he's a good colleague and we can try and figure out what to do. So I was still unaware of everything and uh, I wake up in the recovery room and I'm feeling like one little twinge of pain and I'm smiling because I go, oh, it's just my ovary. And I asked the recovery room nurse, I said, could you tell me what happened? And she said, well, your doctor's gonna be in here in a little bit and he'll talk to you. And I said, well, I feel like there's like only one incision and they took out an ovary. She said, yes, they took out an ovary. So I'm smiling even more. And then the recovery room door bursts open. My son comes rushing in and the nurses are chasing after him. And he's like, I have to see my mom. I have a midterm. I have to get back to school, but I have to see her. And I looked at his face and I said, it's bad, isn't it? And he's like, yeah, he said, it's cancer, mom. Mm -hmm bad cancer <laughs> and we just cried and hugged for a while and then he went off for his midterm and the doctor came in and he said it looks like stage 3b ovarian cancer and he talked about how it was spread and it was on and around and that he and dave had decided that they were going to do six rounds of intravenous taxol and intraperitoneal carboplatin and then go in and do cleanup. And then I would have follow-up chemotherapy 
because they believed it would be needed. And so he had put a port into my abdomen and the next day I started on chemo and he was the sweetest man. He was, he was older, an older gentleman, um, very reserved, but um, had a sense of humor. And the first thing he said to me is, do you have a hairdresser who will come to the hospital? And I said, why? He said, it's really horrific to see big clumps of hair on a pillow um, right after chemo. And it would be best if she could come and cut your hair. And that, that's one of the things that just really sticks out in my mind about how you know a clinician who's digging in, inside your intestines and your um, female organs can think about the whole person and be concerned about my anxiety and my feelings. Uh, and then he also told me, he said, we're not gonna let you get sick through this chemo because if you feel nauseated or vomit, vomit once, he said it could become habitual and it's our goal to keep you healthy the whole time. And I actually never, I, I actually gained weight during chemo um, because of mostly because of the steroids and boredom, but uh, <laughs> I was, I never had a pang of nausea. And so I went home after my hospital stay with my first round of chemo and had my schedule. I had my follow-up, um, surgical visit. And he said to me, have you ever worked in asbestos? And I said, no, why? And he said, well, we think you have mesothelioma. And I said, what's that? Because it wasn't advertised on television by lawyers in those days. And he said, it's a type of cancer caused by exposure to asbestos. And so Google came out really fast. And I started reading the articles that said mesothelioma is an inevitably fatal disease with a median survival rate of six to 18 months. And I'm like, holy, I am screwed. And uh, there actually was very little research at that time, um, especially about the peritoneal type, which is obviously what I had. And um, so I called Dave and I said, Dave, what do we do? And he said, well, um, Dr. Moran, I have met and we're going to add gemcitabine to your treatment protocol. And so you'll be going three times a month instead of two times a month and we'll see what happens. And he said, but I recommend that you talk to Dr. Paul Sugarbaker because he has a protocol for peritoneal meso. And he said, it's, you know, relatively new. And I said, yeah, I read his article and I said, it scared me. And he said, yes, he said, there's only 30, 31 patients in the study and a third of them didn't do well. And we're still not sure about the outcomes. And I said, David, there's no control group because how can you have a control group in a situation like this? Mm -hmm. And so um, we thought about it. And then fortunately, Dr. Howard Silberman is at USC and he wrote the surgical oncology textbook and Dr. Sugarbaker had a chapter in there. And so I sat with him and we talked and I decided that if my life was gonna be short and the procedure is so new and it was different in those days, they did, it was more aggressive, I believe. Um, mm -hmm. I said, I didn't wanna put my family or myself through that. I wanted to enjoy the time I had left and I would 
do a different route. And since my situation with the interperitoneal seedlings was similar to metastatic ovarian cancer, I decided to follow the path of what they did in GYN oncology. And so I did my six rounds of chemo and then I had um, the big debulking surgery where as Dr. Morrow says, I still can't believe you have bowel movements because of what I did to your intestines. <laughs> um, he had, I had all my organs out of my body. He was cleaning it all out, scraping away the seedlings. And then what he couldn't remove um, manually, he burned with a la using laser, laser ablation. And then um, I did a little recovery and um, had intraperitoneal chemo of Taxol biweekly for almost a year. Um, but the thing that stands out so much in my mind was the burn inside my abdomen from where the laser ablation was. And every time I visit someone in that hospital, and I see how far the elevator was from the room that I was in. My husband said he could hear me going, ow, as he got off the elevator. And I, I just had two elbow surgeries and haven't taken a Tylenol since. And I told the doctors, don't worry about pain meds. And they go, why? I said, well, if you've had the surgeries that I've had before, this is just nothing. Mm -hmm. And... Um, so basically I did that, but in September of 2001, um, I was reading, and I can't remember it's time or Newsweek because my brain is a little chemo-fogged. Chemo mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> Gleevec, there was a picture of a little yellow pill on um, the cover of the magazine, and it said this will change the way cancer is treated. Gleevec is an anti-angiogenesis pill or medicine um, that targets proteins in cancer tumors. And it was developed for chronic myeloid leukemia. Um, but um, one of the things that Dave Alberts had done was he sent my tumor tissues for testing because his job at the Arizona Cancer Center was to bring personalized medicine to the center. And he said, you're gonna be my test case and so when the um, results came back, there were three proteins growing out of control and one of them happened to be the one that Gleevec targeted. And so he mm -hmm. said, I'm on the board of Novartis, we'll get this approved for off license and you can just start taking it. And I've been taking Gleevec ever since September of 2001 and still take it today, even though Dave's not sure I still need it but it's sort of, it doesn't do much harm. And it's sort of like my port. After my uh, intraperitoneal chemotherapy, they wanted to remove the port in my abdomen. And I said, nope, that's my good luck term. As long as it's in there, I'm not gonna ever need it again. And so far, so good. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. Kind of so, so just to recap then, so you began with symptoms um, and by you know, physical exam, your doctor felt that there was something abnormal. Um, you never oh. had anything that showed up on CT scan. Right. Well, I and actually, the only clue you had, okay, please. Oh, sorry. I actually didn't have symptoms. I, well, I had excessive bleeding, but, you know, ladies mm -hmm. my, my, my age kind of do that. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's why I was, uh, I, 
asked my mm -hmm. GP for a referral to, uh, to a GYN, but he was the one who said, I, I, something just doesn't feel right. Um, but mm -hmm. retro, mm -hmm. retrospectively, um, when I used to sneeze, I would have to bring my knees up to my chest because sometimes I would get a pain in my abdomen. And mm -hmm. if I climbed on an incline, like when I was hiking, I would feel a pain in my back. And I just ignored those. And mm -hmm. that, went, that was quite a few years. And it was probably had something to do with what was going on inside of me. Mm -hmm. okay, so, so 1998 then was when you first medical attention first said there's something wrong. Right. Um, nothing on scans, elevated CA-125, exploratory surgery, basically, um, with the CA-125 rising, and that's when you were discovered. So we're talking about almost, what? Just three years. It was three years. years. How many? 23 years. So um, all this time, I know you've been on Gleevec, um, and, you know, Gleevec, as you had said, you know, um, targets some proteins. Um, Rarely do patients with mesothelioma express this protein. So right. I guess if we look at mesothelioma, you were fortunate that there was something unusual about your pathology, um, that you were able to have a targeted agent where uh, probably the majority of patients today, there really aren't that many targets that we have you know, drugs for. Exactly. Now, a lot of conversations I've been having lately, and I, I think you'd be the perfect person to ask about this. Um, you know, the questions I get is, you know, Mary, they didn't find anything on CT scan initially. How do I get through these scans every three months? Is something going to show up? So for yourself, how do you, you know, all these years later, how do you trust that you're well and things are okay? What, what do you do psychologically to prepare yourself? Well, that's an interesting question because after my original treatment, they said, well, you'll come back for scans first every three months and every six months. And I said, but scans don't really tell you everything. I want a zipper put in so you can peek inside and, and tell me what's mm -hmm. really going on. And they said, well, you just have to trust that, you know, we'll do your CA-125, we'll do the scans. And mesothelioma doesn't always appear as little seedlings. Sometimes they're, you know, solid tumors. So, you know, we have to be do our due diligence. And we're just going to, you know, follow how you do, how you feel and look at the total person, the total picture. Um, and at the same time, I started seeing a hematologist. And mm -hmm. also, um, Dave said to me, you know, one of the things that happens with peritoneal mesothelioma can be bowel obstructions. And so it's probably good that you meet a bowel surgeon or a GI surgeon and get comfortable with him because, you know, that's an, a possibility. And so that was another thing that I did. And basically, um, I just had to trust that the medical science mm -hmm. and my body would somehow put that picture back together again. Um, but it took years and years and years for me to actually feel like I... Like I was living to die at that time, waiting for the time mm -hmm. I was planning my funeral. I wouldn't make plans for two weeks ahead, much less six months ahead. Um, and our family's funny story is uh, Thanksgiving is my husband's favorite holiday. 
And so in 2001, even though I was dragging and could barely move, I made the most amazing Thanksgiving ever. I normally just bake normal pies. I got all my culinary magazines out and I found the most ridiculous things with the most ingredients that were this tall and this wide and, and did everything to the nth degree. And we had this amazing, because we always have between 20 and 50 people for Thanksgiving and a university community, people who don't have places to go, plus people who've been with us for years who started that way. And everyone's like, oh, this is so amazing. And I said, yeah, well, I may not be here next year. And you have to remember my Thanksgiving is the best ever. Oh. Well, I lived. And the next year I thought, holy moly, I have to do this again. And it has to be even better <laughs> just in case this is the last Thanksgiving. Well, after four of those, I decided they could just eat whatever I put on the table. <laughs> and <I was> like, <laughs> so now I'm much more relaxed about Thanksgiving, although I still try to do a theme. <laughs> so, um, but it's things like that, that, you know, get into your mind that never would have been in your mind. It's like, this could be the last time I see X or this could be the last time I'm doing something. And I realized that I really wasn't living. Um, and so now I'm dying to live instead of living to die. And, but it takes a lot. Um, and part of what helped was at USC Norris Cancer Center, the first person who shows up into your room after you wake up with a terrible diagnosis is someone from the social work department. And it was a wonderful person who said, um, I know you may not think you need this, but you probably really do. And your family will too, because this is such a you know, scary time in a person's life. And even though you're both professionals, I was a vice president of a medical university. So I was experienced with um, such issues and I've worked in medical education my whole life. Um, and we actually took advantage of the social services that they offered. Um, we did individual and family counseling, uh, and that helped a lot. And I highly recommend that um, I help a lot of people mm -hmm. who get a cancer diagnosis. Um, when someone comes up to me at a conference that has nothing to do with meso or medicine, and they say, can we talk? I'm always, oh no, not another person with cancer. Um, and, I, and I highly recommend that to families I'm working with an 18 year old girl now who's the daughter of one of my husband's students and she was diagnosed with um, a type of lymphoma and um, the whole family was all in a tizzy and uh, I said UCLA has these services, please take advantage of them, they will make a difference to you. Mm -hmm. so, um, another funny, so oh, I, I was going to tell you one, because um, one of the ways I get through this is through humor. When, when my mom had dementia, my son was studying comedy, and I would talk to his comedy teacher about how, you know, we get through this whole problem using humor. So it's the same thing here. Um, and I was at a conference and a really close friend came up and He's like, can we talk? Oh, maybe this isn't a good time. It's a conference. And I go, no, of course we can talk. And I was waiting for him to tell me that he or someone in his family was diagnosed with cancer. And he said to me, well, my girlfriend and I, we broke up. And I was like, thank God. 
God. And, and, and he looks at me, he goes, I'm so unhappy. Well, you know, why are you, why are you jumping for joy? And I said, because you don't have cancer. And he had no idea what I meant. But when I told him, he was like, oh, now I understand. Crazy, though. I mean, it's, you become a cancer magnet when you carry a diagnosis like this. Well, and also um, when you, you know, for, mm -hmm. oh, I say also when you succeed or seem to succeed, because like, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, so I mean, so I mean, you're considered a long term survivor in this disease. Um, what do you feel about the terminology that we use sometimes like warrior and survivor? Um, do you use those terms yourself for, you, for yourself? Do you personalize them or, you know, do you prefer not having a tagline? Um, I'm kind of the person who doesn't take anything very personally. I have a very thick skin, mm -hmm. but what I try to do is because I am such a long-time survivor and having been in the medical field, it wasn't as scary for me because I understand what the doctors are saying. I have the ability to question medical professionals. I'm not afraid because I know, you know, we're very similar. We're all people, we're humans. And, you know, some people have that fear of, I can't ask my doctor a question. He'll think I don't trust him, um, but it's my body and I do that. Um, and so what I try to do is be sort of a role model and someone who mm -hmm. anyone can approach. So you can call me a patient, a victim, a survivor, um, a warrior. Um, it, for me, it's, you know, I'm all of those. Um, and mm -hmm. I kind of go with the flow. So when I'm talking to other fellow warriors, um, I kind of try to feel what they're feeling and go with the flow. Mm -hmm. But it's really important to me. Yeah. Oh. I was wondering um, if you're comfortable if you would discuss a little bit about um, your attending some medical conferences and, you know, some of the situations that have led to participating in some interesting research. Oh, Are you okay to discuss that? Because oh. we didn't, you know, good. Absolutely. I think this is just wonderful. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm an, I'm an open book. Um, okay, so... Uh, and also this really relates to my relationship with the foundation. So um, early on, I was approached by uh, a lawyer named Chris Hahn and he asked me, I think that's his name, is that correct? Mm -hmm. And yeah, yeah I, my, I don't do well with names. I do know you're Mary. Um, <laughs> um, and he told me about a foundation and, and asked if I would want to participate and at that time, I was really engaged in a whole lot of other things, plus trying to survive. And what the foundation seemed to be at that time didn't seem to be a fit for me. And at that time, I was the only mesothelioma patient that I knew of. Um, I was being treated in a GYN oncology um, situation. And even at USC, they hadn't had any mesothelioma patients. And one time I did go to Sloan Kettering just to say, I got to see someone who's a, a mesothelioma person. And I realized that I was getting, you know, the right care here and I didn't have to travel across the country. But then all of a sudden I got um, announcement of a foundation meeting and it was taking place in New York. 
And the program was very interesting because it had medical aspects of it. It had legal aspects and it also had interpersonal aspects with other patients. And I went to that first conference and I realized, I looked around the room and I was like, wow, people who look like me have this and people who look like my family have relatives with this. And there are people who have much worse situations and people who are similar to me and I can learn a lot. And I was drawn in and I became a member and I started attending conferences regularly. And in those days, the, we didn't use the internet much among mm-hmm. our, you know, participants, you know, the, the patients, there's the warriors, the survivors, um, they're bereaved and, and their caregivers. Um, things have really evolved in a, an amazing way. Uh, and I attended a bigger meeting because that New York meeting was a small one day meeting. And then the next meeting I attended was a bigger meeting where there were many more patients and there were really segmented groups where we could have discussions about you know, patient issues and caregiver issues, but also there was a scientific program And having worked in the world of science, social science and medicine, I asked you if I could attend the scientific conference and I sat in and listened to many of the talks. And um, also at that time, there were some scientific talks aimed at the people who were undergoing treatment. And at that time, I realized that it would be good for me to be able to translate what some of the doctors were saying into a language that fellow patients could understand because not everybody is, you know, a PhD trained scientist who has worked in the medical field forever. And there's only, you know, a handful of people who work in the foundation and a lot of patients. And when we're at the conference, people would say to me, well, what does that mean? Or, and so um, keeping up with the science, even on the side that wasn't related to my own treatment, but other things was important to me. And through that, um, I learned about some of the scientific studies that were going on. And actually before that, um, when they did my genetic testing um, after my initial um, surgery, which I forgot to mention, um, I was diagnosed as a BRCA2 weird variant. And so I was asked to participate in a study in the, um, in the lab at University of Washington, um, Dr. King's lab. And they discovered you know, some weird genetic components to my family. And it was very interesting. All the members of both sides of my family got involved and we learned a lot about ourselves. And when some of the studies um, in relationship to mesothelioma came about, I thought, well, one of the things that I need to do with my life, because it's a different kind of life, is help science learn more about this illness and not just about um, the physiological issues, but the psychological issues as well. And so I... Um, signed up to be part of the study at NIH of um, exceptional responders to rare cancers. 
and I um, go once a year to NIH and um, have a lot of testing done, um, give them half my blood. <laughs> and like, I can't believe it. There's that much blood in my body and there's still more left. Um, and it's very exciting to be part of that world where they're learning about what's going on in me and other people across cancers to help everybody. Because when I was diagnosed um, with meso a year before my sister had been diagnosed with breast cancer, and I'm like, you're so lucky you have breast cancer. They have studied breast cancer ad nauseum. At that time, there was very little research on mesothelioma. And I don't think we would be where we are today without the foundation because the foundation is the mesothelioma applied research foundation and has funded you know a lot of well it's been years that you've been funding research that has helped scientists um, get nih grants and nci grants um, which has changed the face of mesothelioma and its treatment um, over time so um, that was an exciting part. And then um, at, through the foundation's meetings, I met Dr. Carbone, and not only do we share Italian citizenship and live in the same neighborhood in Rome when we're there, um, but he was very interested in my case, and I've been out there quite a few times and he's discovered a strange mutation in me that he's studying, he and his team are studying. And um, I just hope that, you know, my disease and illness wasn't for naught and that, you know, good things come from what they learn from me being in these studies. Well, thank you, Susan, because, you know, this is, uh, you know, it's, it's a, you know, it's volunteerism its generosity of sharing, you know, your blood, your pathology, et cetera, to help advance the field. Um, I know you've also oh, participated with Dr. Hassan and his uh, natural history protocol, which, you know, I, I think that, you know, getting to know some of these experts and coming to the conferences mm -hmm. as well, you know, oh, if absolutely. you are in a moment of crisis, it makes such a difference to go to someone that you've met and you've already established some type of a relationship or there's some familiarity. You know, it takes the oh. scariness away of traveling, right? Absolutely. No, absolutely. And I think, mm -hmm. and I think oh, I all say, the testing you've had and all the genetics and all, you know, you really have taken ownership of your disease. You know, it's, it's oh, a source now of strength um, and power. I mean, you know, this is, you know, you control it now. It's you're, you're not diagnosed with cancer. That your life is out of control. You found a way now, I believe, to control the situation and to enjoy your oh, life. Absolutely, yeah. It was the, a real turning point. Um, I mean, I enjoyed everything that we did in the early days because I kept thinking, "Oh, this is going to be the last time of this." And when mm -hmm. that turning point happened, where I realized wow, I've done that before. It's not, it wasn't the last time and maybe I can live a happy, healthy life. Um, that everything changed. I my booked plane tickets for a year in advance. Um, I'm planning conferences next summer. Um, and I don't, you know, the only time I really think about it is when I have um, like a meeting or an encounter with someone 
Or uh, every night when I take my Gleevec, it's like, oh, yeah, I am a cancer patient. Pop, mm, go to bed, have sweet dreams, wake up in the morning, you know, live my day as a normal person. And then again, pop my Gleevec at night. Um, but I know I'm really fortunate. Um, and I also had a very, very supportive um, world around me. Uh, I continued my work as a vice president of a medical university while I was doing my chemo, which would be nine hours a day. Then I go to my office for the nine hours of the steroid high. And the president of my university put a sofa bed with a pillow and a blankie in my, my office so I could come in and take naps when I wanted to. Um, I would come home and someone from the university would have sent dinner uh, and and that happened quite frequently, uh, just the support. And then the support from the foundation and the knowledge and the groups and the people I've met and sadly the people we've lost. Um, mm -hmm. and, um, and also the, the, just the Facebook group, uh, just meeting for at least 10 years, I was like the only mesothelioma person I knew. And now I know a lot of people. And sadly, um, at first it was really a disease of old white men who worked in the Navy, um, in shipyards, in you know, doing pipe fitting and steam fitting and um, in the building world. Mm -hmm. And now sadly, it's kind of everybody. And, you know, I realized now I was like, why are all these young people having mesothelioma? Well, it's home renovations and exposures in other ways that I never even thought about. And so I try to be an activist in that way as well. Um, I've actually been to a hotel that had a sign on the wall, like, be careful with the walls. There's asbestos in here. And I, you know, I called the hotel chain and I said, this is not acceptable. You really have to do something. This is a, this can lead to a terrible disease. So I try to spend my time, you know, raising awareness um, as well, both as to the cause and to, you know, what happens once you've been diagnosed and treated. This is Sue Ellen. Thank you so much uh, for you know spending this time with us, and um, you know I, I I love the way that you're always willing to reach out and to support other families who are suffering with this diagnosis, and you know you provide hope. You know, 23 years later, um, it's it's a it's you know it's a true story, and it's something that should be celebrated. And I know, you know, speaking from the foundation, we're so grateful to you know, all of the assistance you've given us over the years, your time on the board and your involvement, you know, with all the groups. So thank you, Sue Ellen. It's been really a pleasure okay. getting to know you and having a chance to share your story today. Well, thanks, Mary. And it's Take my care. pleasure. And if anyone wants to reach out, I'd be very happy to communicate. Thank you. I appreciate that. Have a good day. Have and a good thank you. Bye, Mary. Bye.